0: Welcome to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm your host, Chris Krug, president of the Franklin News Foundation and publisher of the Center Square Newswire Service. Today, just a few days ahead of Christmas, I'm in the Center Square studios in suburban Chicago. Center Square was established in 2019 and today publishes more than 60 original straight news stories each day from across the country. Our 501c3 mission allows the Center Square to be republished in hundreds of news outlets across the U.S., the Center Square is familiar to you because you've read our work or you receive your local news. Our original taxpayer-centric reporting focuses on the size, scope, and effectiveness of state and federal government. On this week's Center Square Radio Hour, we'll explore the top stories with the reporters who broke them, from those originating in Washington, D.C., to the underreported stories from the states that hold national relevance. We round out our coverage with economic insights from Dr. Orphe Devangui, Ph.D. Economist, and also bring you the latest in K 12 public education news from our Franklin News Foundation's Chalkboard News Team. The Center Square is a 501c3 independent, nonprofit, and nonpartisan news organization. To ensure that the Center Square continues to deliver news like no other media outlet in America today, we ask that you go to franklinnews.org and make a tax deductible charitable contribution to support the Center Square and the Center Square Radio Hour. Over the next hour, we're going to check in with our reporting team on a number of stories that made headlines this past week in national news. The Colorado Supreme Court barred former President Donald J. Trump from the state ballot. In Arizona, Governor Katie Hobbs sent Arizona National Guard troops to the border. In Washington state, three organizations are being accused of running an intimidation campaign against a signature drive. We'll be right back with all that and more in the Center Square Radio Hour.
1: Knowledge is power, and you deserve to know what happens in your state government. That's why the nonprofit Franklin News Foundation is bringing you straight news journalism through the Center Square, reporting on state authorities and publishing stories that show where your money goes and who spends it. By supporting the Center Square, you can track politicians' use of taxpayer money and demand transparency from elected officials. This is how we can equip everyday Americans to hold their government accountable. Become a supporter of Franklin Today at franklinnews.org donate.
0: Welcome back to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm Chris Krug. The Colorado Supreme Court ruled former President Donald J. Trump cannot appear on the 2024 ballot because they alleged he engaged in insurrection. Cole McNeely, General Manager of America's Talking Network, is here to tell us more.
1: Joining me today is the Center Square's Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief Casey Harper. Casey, The Colorado State Supreme Court voted 3-4 Tuesday to block former President Donald Trump from receiving votes on the 2024 presidential ballot, saying he's disqualified because he engaged in an insurrection, a reference to January 6th, obviously. Casey, it's not an incredibly complex story, but it's, it's a story that could have a lot of implications beyond just the state of Colorado.
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of implications and maybe not too complex, but highly controversial. Of course, there's immediate backlash over this decision as to be expected when the, the Republican frontrunners' chances at the White House are endangered. Now, there, there's a lot of levels to this. First off, Colorado is not a state that, you know, Trump, Trump has never won Colorado in a general election. Let's say that first. So that, that's an important fact to remember, but it's not just isolated to Colorado. Um, Maine is considering doing the same thing now as is California. And if this success continues, then, you know, and success, I guess, and those who oppose Trump, if you put it that way, but um, then you could see other states do it. And if then, if you saw a state, you know, of course, California is not a state Trump is really expected to win in general either. But if you saw a state like Texas or a big red state that Trump really has to win, to win the um, general election, if you see a, a contest rise there to Trump being on the ballot, it could this could really get get out of control. And the other thing, you know, what what to look for down the road on this is uh, the Supreme Court justices may not be able to enjoy their Christmas holiday quite as much as you and I, Cole, because they're probably going to be having to look over and review whether they're going to take up this case because the ruling from Colorado takes effect, I believe, uh, January fourth. Is fourth or fifth, which is the day before the Colorado Secretary of State, which who oversees you know the elections in that state, has to sign off on the ballot and a ballot that either includes Trump or doesn't. And so the the Colorado State Supreme Court acknowledged that there's a high likelihood the Supreme Court will want to look at this case, and so they said we'll give two weeks before the takes effect. And so I think it's very likely in the next week or two the Supreme Court is going to weigh in, Um and of course wh- whichever way they go, we'll have you know, down the ballot, literally, I guess, implications across the states. And Casey, I'm going to pull from your story that
1: you wrote at the centersquare.com here. The Colorado Secretary of State, as you said, has January 5th to certify the ballot. And and the court in its majority, it wrote that, quote, we are mindful of the magnitude and weight of the questions down before us. Likewise, mindful of our duty to apply the law without fear and favor or without being swayed by public reaction to the decisions that the law mandates we reach and, uh, you know, that, that was kind of part of that conversation of them giving wiggle room, basically, for the Supreme Court a couple weeks to come in and make a decision on this if the Supreme Court would like to. Now, Casey, you mentioned the fact that this could create a a ripple effect to a degree across different states around the country. And beyond kind of the general election 2024, this is creating waves inside of the GOP primary, which is still occurring, believe it or not. I think uh, if you look at the polls, it doesn't look like much of a primary with Donald Trump leading at, you know, depending upon what polls you look at, up 30, 40 points. But, you know, Governor Ron DeSantis, who's obviously depending upon which, you know, says polls, you look at jockeying for that second place position, third place uh, right there, neck and neck with Nikki Haley. Most of the time, DeSantis, you know, he came out and, you know, he I think he was critical of this and, and probably in a couple of ways, because uh as much as, yes, this keeps off, you know, Trump off of the uh, Colorado ballot, this is probably going to have a, a similar political reaction that the indictments had for Trump, which boosted him in the polls in the primary, which I I think Governor DeSantis even came out this week and was, you know, criticizing the indictments because of how it actually helped the former president and the uh, GOP primary and just shot him to the top and has kept him there.
2: Yeah. It's it's this funny um, Trump paradox that those who oppose Trump the hardest somehow often lift him up. In popularity, and so we saw that in two thousand sixteen or in two thousand and fifteen when the campaign you know began when uh the uh, much of the media was very opposed to Trump and actually thought he had no chance of winning, and so they thought that they could submarine the Republican primary by propping Trump up and guaranteeing his loss and Then, when he won the primary, they went after him mercilessly. but in retrospect after he beat Hillary Clinton in two thousand and sixteen there was a lot of criticism of the media because they spent so much time talking about Trump and criticizing him that it was, it put all the focus on him. And most, I think many people in hindsight felt like the media's constant focus, albeit negative, on Trump actually helped him win in some interesting way. Then I think we're seeing the same thing here, as you mentioned, which um, the legal challenges and the, and the law enforcement you know, difficulties that Trump are having propelling him. And people probably may not remember this, but Last year, DeSantis looked like in the polls, he had a really good chance of catching up some ground on Trump and maybe beating him. And yeah, he was building momentum. Trump was looking really weak. And then something happened, Cole. The FBI raided Mar-a-Lago. And you look at the polls immediately after the raid of Mar-a-Lago is really, that is the end of DeSantis' presidential ambitions. And Trump, his polls absolutely soar after that. And so I I think it's totally fair to say the FBI raid of Mar a Lago ended DeSantis' presidential hopes. And so it's interesting to think of could this keep happening here? And also, one thing I'll say before tossing it back to you is, you know, of course, there are legal problems with all this that Trump may or may not be successful in. He does have nearly 100 criminal charges. So assuming that he's able to kind of stay out of jail and all those things, the reason politically I think these attacks don't stick to Trump as much is one, they've thrown everything at him over the last few years. And for one reason or another, it hasn't stuck. But also because the leading Democrat, President Joe Biden, has his own whole host of you know, questionable corruption allegations. And so it's kind of seeming like, well, yeah, they both have probably, who knows really what they did. And they're both accused of a lot of things. And so maybe they just kind of cancel out in an interesting way from the political side. Of course, legally, it doesn't work that way, but it'll be interesting to watch. And of course, it'll all be settled next year in 2024. And and to throw another wrinkle in there, I think
1: part of it is Trump's brand. And what I mean by that is he has branded himself from the time he entered the GOP primary in 2015. He branded himself as the anti-establishment and not even in that kind of traditional kind of a, a Ted Cruz or Bernie Sanders way, right? Not not that we're a little bit more to the the end of the wings of the party or something like that. He branded himself as somebody that was going against establishment, so any time the, quote, establishment flashes back at him, it just feeds into his brand. Well, Casey, our listeners can keep up with this story and more at TheCenterSquare.com. There's going to be plenty more coming on the uh, 2024 election. We're getting right into the heat of it. Primary start in a couple months here. So uh, keep up with all that at TheCenterSquare.com. Thank you to our team in Washington, D.C.
0: for that update. While former President Trump's feasibility as a candidate remains in question going into this election year, U.S. President Joe Biden is facing significant disapproval on a number of issues, among them his handling of the border. In Arizona, Democrat Governor Katie Hobbs issued an executive order to send Arizona National Guard troops to secure the southern border and criticize the Biden administration's handling of the situation. Eliana Kurnodal, Assistant General Manager of America's Talking Network, is here to tell us more.
3: Joining me today is Cameron Arcand, Arizona reporter for the Center Square. How are you, Cameron?
4: Good, I'm working well.
3: Doing pretty well. Governor Katie Hobbs of Arizona issued an executive order last week, sending National Guard troops to the southern border. And you broke this story, and you've been following it pretty closely leading up to this point. Can you start us off with some background, like what events led up to this decision?
4: Yeah, so this originally caught attention a few weeks ago when the Lukeville Port of Entry was shut down by Customs and Border Protection. Now, what happened in the events after that was that Democrats and Republicans were essentially, I don't want to say united in their criticism, but they were very critical of the way that this was being managed. So basically what happened next was the governor um, originally said, hey, authorities are not asking for this right now in terms of deploying troops to the border. And then, you know, pressure continued to build up, continued to gain the situation didn't seem to be getting any better. So she decided around two weeks after, I believe, if I have that correctly, to then order troops down to the border.
3: So then with the troops that she's ordered to go to the border now, what are those additional troops going to be doing and where specifically are they headed?
4: Yeah. So first off, they're going to be headed to the Lukeville area and the San Miguel area. Contributor popular belief, this isn't actually to directly be helping customs and protection open the crossing. It's to essentially take the burden off of them in hopes that they'll eventually do so. So, what the job of the National Guard is to do is to help out Department of Public Safety officers in their efforts to catching drug smuggling, human trafficking, you know, kind of these crime prevention. Um, sort of tasks. And I'm sure there's other stuff that we'll learn more in terms of what's going on. But as of right now, that seems to be the case for the public.
3: Okay. So Governor Hobbs is a Democrat. And to some, this might seem like a break with the normal Democratic position on the border. How have people kind of across the board been responding to Hobbs' executive order? And how has she herself framed this?
4: So I'll start with the left because it's a little bit easier to explain. So on the left, you have people who are praising the decision, calling for the Lukeville Court of Entry to be reopened. But you also see, you know, like some of the tribes in that area and some other folks in the far left not necessarily being on board with wanting troops in this area necessarily. They kind of think, that, you know, too many, too many cooks in the kitchen. But on the right, you see a little bit of a different situation. Um, although they do kind of agree with the principles on I mean, the National Guard troops, a lot of folks are wondering, why not soon? Her old opponent, the gubernatorial race, Carrie Lake, was like, hey, I would have done this on day one. Why are you waiting your a year at this point? So you're seeing that a little bit, and then you're also seeing a lot of people being like, generally, this isn't soon enough, doesn't go far enough, but still generally kind of being like, okay, we're cool with this.
3: And how has she kind of, framed this from her own political standpoint.
4: So she has framed it as her saying that she's been wanting to secure the border since day one. Um, She went down to to Lukeville a couple weeks ago, posted a video down there, and she is kind of wanting to brand herself as someone who is both pro-border security but is not quite at that Texas kind of Greg Abbott point of wanting to take legal risks with certain things. So kind of trying to find that.
3: And you mentioned briefly some of the tribes in the area. There's been kind of some conversation since she issued this order with some of those tribes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
4: So the tribe that's in that area, I believe it's the Tohono O'odham tribe, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, they are essentially saying, we don't want troops in that area. Fox has been reporting that that Region has no border wall. That their section border doesn't have wall. They're getting roughly around thousand migrants a day based on that reporting, and they only have a few agents to kind of handle that. But because they are a Native American, you know, nation, reservation, whatever you want to call it, you know, they're able to make those kinds of decisions. Governor's office told me the other day that um, you know they've been in communication with the tribe. They've heard them out, and they're like, okay, we'll respect that. Not a big deal. So that's kind of what that situation is. They're really the biggest tribe that can up that section of the border there.
3: So when migrants come through in that area, are there like tribe officials that deal with that? Or do they just kind of move on and go out of the nation into another part of Arizona?
4: No. So they're still being processed by federal officials. There's just fewer border patrol agents that are there based on... That's based on what we know right now. It is, and it's going to get and um, info about what's happening in that area. But that order, even though there is a tribe, there is still under federal control. They can't really do anything about that. But when it comes to the state government, the fact that they have that conversation shows that there is cooperation between the state and the tribe.
3: Okay. Well, this story certainly doesn't seem to be over yet. And I'm sure we'll continue to follow it. And you'll keep us up to date if there's any more developments. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Eliana and Cameron, for that update. Heading further west in Washington State, the organization Let's Go Washington is accusing three other organizations of coordinated efforts to intimidate and disrupt their signature gathering campaigns. Cole Waterbach, managing editor for the Center Square, is here to tell us more.
5: in Washington harassing or intimidating people while they lawfully gather signatures to certify a ballot proposition, is illegal. Yet, that's what a trio of progressive groups has been accused of. Even going so far as to set up hotlines for others to report when they see some of these signature gatherers doing their jobs in a public setting to, I suppose, send off counter efforts to try and dissuade people from signing on the dotted line. Investigative reporter TJ Martinell has a story about how those groups fuse Washington, SEIU 775, which is the Service Employees International Union, Local 775, and Washington, D.C.-based FieldWorks
6: have been put on notice. TJ, tell us more, please. So they've received a cease and desist letter from Let's Go Washington, and the letter was written by former State Attorney General Rob McKenna. And it's accusing them of, quote, a coordinated intimidation campaign against contractors for Let's Go Washington to disrupt and prevent the collection of voter signatures for the initiatives. And, you know, the process, what what
5: is the process behind getting some of these harassers charged with the crime
6: that McKenna is asserting here? Well, that's a good question because it's depending on what they're going to be charged with, because what they're claiming or alleging is that these groups are harassing signature collectors and it's prompted police response. And in many of those cases, the people gathering the signatures ended up having to leave or people who wanted to sign the ballot initiative ended up leaving. So effectively, they succeeded in preventing people from putting their signatures down. Now, is it a
5: is it is a misdemeanor is a felony. Do we have the uh, what uh, is the language?
6: It's a misdemeanor, a gross misdemeanor in the state that's interfering with the signature gathering process. Got it. And now, have we heard anything from these three groups in terms of a
5: response? I mean, they got an official cease and desist. So there has to be some kind of uh, response or has there been any change of action? Have they let up on this campaign to
6: allegedly intimidate the gatherers or the people that would be signing. We have not heard from them. I reached out to them for comment for my stories and didn't hear a response. But the thing where it's going to get interesting is it's potentially prompted in private individuals to act on their own initiative and to just go try to harass or interfere with signature gathering.
5: So you've got a situation where... People are not explicitly from these groups, not explicitly saying go out and harass these people. But they're saying, well, listen, here's a hotline and we may tell you where these people are at. You do what you will. We can't tell you what to do. And in turn, we've seen some real you know, police situ- involved situations where some of these signature gathering efforts have had to pack up and head elsewhere. Now, since this letter was sent from McKenna. Clearly outlining what has been happening and what they're doing and how they're breaking the law, saying cease and desist, otherwise, we will take a further legal action. Are we still seeing this harassment take place?
6: Yeah, there was an incident that allegedly occurred at the Issaquah Costco on Sunday where people were gathering signatures for the initiatives inside the store, and a woman went up and started crossing out or blackening out the signatures, so making them invalid. And there's no, We don't have a lot of details. We only know what was reported by um, independent journalist Brandy Cruz, who happened to actually be there. Was at the Costco? Was at the Costco when it happened, just happened to be there. Uh, I reached out to the police department for comment. They didn't say anything. It seems to be a matter that's being handled privately or independently. I don't think that there's going to be a police complaint due to various circumstances, but this woman apparently... It's believed she wasn't directly involved with any of these groups, but it's not known. Uh, Apparently, her identity has been discovered, but they're obviously not naming her yet.
5: Yeah, I wonder how much culpability the organizations that have been kind of subtly hinting about where these people are and what you could or could not do. In the end, should there be a tort, uh, a a legal damage right to seek regress, I wonder how much liability they would have in
6: a situation like this. Here's the part where it's going to get a little dicey for him. The hotline, which I called to try to get comment, you go to a voicemail, and one of the things that they ask you to provide is a physical description of the person who's gathering the signatures. Oh. That prompted the state Democrat Party chair to say that they could understand why that would be a problem
5: (laughs) well i think yes problematic is an understatement in that regard so
6: when they're when they're saying that there's a problem it wouldn't surprise me if this hotline made some changes or there was some sort of policy change the other interesting thing is that they're allegedly trying to bribe people to go to florida until this whole process is finished that's that's what's alleged is that people were being offered money to go to Florida.
5: So you have these signature gatherers are getting approached by activists saying, here's money, get out of town. What kind of Chicago mobster political process have I ever heard that from short of a like a. Al Capone biopic. Well,
6: here's, I, here's the p- question I would have: Is how do you know they went to Florida? This story is just keep, this
5: just keeps getting wilder. DJ, uh, how long did these petition curators have to get the requisite number of signatures? I believe it's sometime this month. We can. Think I think of. it's the thirtieth, right? I, I yeah, want to say it's right towards the end of the month. They okay. have right until like, just before the new year to turn the signatures in. But uh, obviously, if you're you know, let's go Washington, or you're another group that wants to get these signatures in, you're going to want to have those rounded up so that you can have them and get them to Tumwater
0: before, well before that. Uh, We'll stay uh, up on this. Thank you, TJ. Thank you to our Washington State team for that update. That will do it for the first half of the Center Square Radio Hour. After the break, we will look at more top stories from across the nation. What are the security risks associated with EV charging stations? How did a Connecticut school try to silence a Jewish family after their son experienced anti-Semitism? And how will housing affect the 2024 election? All that and more when we return on the Center Square Radio Hour. Welcome back to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm Chris Krug. Here are this week's quick hits, some of the top stories that you may have missed at the In New York, New York City Mayor Eric Adams is vowing to veto a bill that seeks to end racial profiling by requiring New York City Police Department officers to document every encounter it has with the public. The proposal would require the NYPD to provide quarterly reports detailing certain investigative encounters between the police and civilians, including the race, ethnicity, age, and gender of the civilian, factors that led to the interaction and whether it involved the use of force. In Illinois, those in the housing industry are weighing in on the state's new law that requires landlords to build electric vehicle charging stations into residential buildings upon tenants' requests. Senate Bill 40 was approved earlier this year, and starting January 1st, the law requires single-family homes and newly constructed residential buildings with parking spaces to provide a conduit that allows EV charging if needed. During the fall veto session, the measure was amended to require a charging station capability for each available parking space. In California, the state experienced the highest out-migration of any state in the nation, a major threat to the state's fiscal future as it faces a $68 billion budget deficit and declining tax revenues. New Census Bureau data says that a net total of 338,371 Americans left the Golden State in 2023, compared to those moving in from other states, eating into tax revenues and representing a 2% increase in out-migration over the prior year. You can find more on these stories and more stories like these from across the country at thecentersquare.com. We'll be right back with more
1: in-depth stories on the Center Square Radio Hour. Are you tired of news that puts politics over people? At the nonprofit Franklin News Foundation, we believe in putting people over politics by delivering nonpartisan news and audio content that serves you, the American taxpayer. With Franklin News Foundation, you can read fact based, state focused news for free at thecentersquare.com. You can listen to civil, balanced conversations between policy experts through our podcast network at americastalking.com. Or you can get in-depth news on K-12 education spending, curriculum, and school safety at chalkboardnews.com. It's all free through Franklin, where we put you, the American taxpayer, first in every story, episode, and conversation. And it's only possible through our supporters. Together, we can produce content that puts people over politics and brings Americans the news they deserve. Become a supporter today at franklinnews.org donate. Once again, that's franklinnews.org slash donate.
0: Welcome back to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm Chris Krug. Electric vehicles have been pushed by many as the way forward, but others have raised concerns. One notable concern is the security problems posed by charging stations. Let's go back to Eliana Karnodal to hear more.
3: Joining me today is Kristen Smith, Pennsylvania editor for the Center Square. How are you, Kristen?
7: Doing well, just, you know, preparing for the the run-up to Christmas here. It feels like we just celebrated this last year, and here we are three, four days away from it again. It comes up fast. Yeah, the older I get, the faster it comes, I think. Well, let's jump into our story
3: today. Electric vehicles have been growing in popularity, at least politically and among a lot of environmentalist circles. Not as much with consumers. And there have been a number of concerns surrounding them. I think a lot of us have heard about problems with charging stations um, and how that can be difficult for electrical grids. There's also concerns about the longevity of batteries. But another concern that I'll admit I had not heard yet, but one of the Center Square's contributors, Lauren Jessup, reported on recently, it's the security concerns that charging stations can pose. Can you tell us more about this? How are charging stations a security risk?
7: Yeah, it's something that I had never really considered either. Although Lauren has been speaking with Robert Charette, who is an author and longtime systems engineer. He's written the EV Transition Explained, and he really goes into this issue in his his book. And he talks about how EV stations are essentially very vulnerable to hackers. And this is even heightened by the fact that an EV station relies on both the power grid and a wireless connectivity to work. And so therefore you plug into a, a charging station and not only are you relying on the power grid to respond, but you need cell phone service to make that happen. And so you can see how this could be ripe for hacking. And it even goes down to the, to the element of not only could they prevent your your car from charging, but they could also access sensitive user data that's stored on your vehicle because a lot of these smart vehicles now, I mean, they are able to record all sorts of information about us that we're not even aware of. Like they can tell how long we've had our trunk open for and, you know, where our location is. So there's just a lot of really personal things that could be exposed to hackers that I, you know, we just, I don't even think we've contemplated as people who will be having to make this transition over the next decade.
3: So is this just a potential theoretical concern or is this something that's already been coming up?
7: Shred says this is, this has happened multiple times. Of course, you know, we're just starting this EV adoption and, Building out charging stations is something that is taking place all over the country. It's certainly something that Pennsylvania has really been focusing on in the last year. But still, we don't have a lot of charging stations, and we don't have a lot of people who have EVs yet in order to face this on the magnitude that Charette and others are fearful will come within the next couple of years.
3: And is this just a concern with some of the charging stations? Like, are there some companies that have had this issue or is it something that the
7: various different companies that make these have run into it's my understanding that it's all different types of chargers can be vulnerable to this again it's something that it's an emerging threat that we're having that you know EV manufacturers are having to deal with and so it is something that theoretically everyone is is exposed to and as i had mentioned before you have issues where internet connectivity and wireless connectivity is already a challenge in certain wide parts of this country, I should say, where it's very rural, very mountainous. That's already an issue. So the idea that a hacker could come in and and disrupt the power grid or disrupt connectivity for people, now you're stuck. You can't go anywhere because your vehicle can't charge.
3: Yeah. And that's kind of been a concern even without the threat of hacking is just the concern of covering those distances where there's not as much of an infrastructure. Yeah. So electric vehicles and charging stations require pretty advanced technology and infrastructure, both from like a physical perspective with an electrical grid, but also from the software point of view. And like you mentioned, requiring cell phone service. What are
7: some other problems that have arisen from these requirements that they have? So that's a very interesting question. And it is something that Pennsylvania in particular, but other states are starting to realize is that there's a lot of reliability issues here, aside from having a sufficient wireless service. I mean, you have something as simple as these broken and malfunctioning charging We don't have a lot of skilled technicians who know how to fix them. Um, There's no attendance on duty to watch over the equipment. We have issues, much like thieves would steal a catalytic converter in a traditional uh, gas-powered vehicle. Now they're stealing copper cables from these vehicles. So it's a familiar Threat in this particular case, but still, it's not something that you would ever think about when you're charging your EVs. You don't, I don't think it, the practicality of it just doesn't cross our minds. And that's what Shiretta is saying is that this is such a varied and complex topic that, yeah, it sounds great. Let's have everybody have an EV in the next 10 years. How, how awesome will that be um, for the environment, for, you know, having to pay on for gas? But there's just so many practical elements of it that we haven't, we haven't thought that far down the road yet, quite frankly.
3: Yeah. And Lauren, who who wrote this, has also written a series of articles that listeners can check out at the center square if they want to learn more about this. This will be really interesting in the next few years as this technology expands and has to prove itself on a larger scale. And I'm sure we'll continue to report on it. Thank you so much for joining
7: us today, Kristen. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure.
0: Thank you, Eliana and Kristen, for that update. A Jewish family at a Connecticut public school refused a settlement that would have required them to remain silent about the anti-Semitism their son experienced. Tom Gannert, Managing Editor of the Center Square, is here to tell us more.
8: Joining me today is Chalkboard's K-12 editor, Brendan Clary. How are you doing today, Brendan?
9: I'm doing well, Tom. How about you?
8: Good. You recently wrote about a parent who said that his son experienced anti-Semitism at his public school in Westport, Connecticut, and the school offered a settlement on the condition that no one could talk about it. Can you tell me a little bit about this, what happened and why it matters?
9: Yeah, of course, Tom. So Andrew Goldberg uh, wrote for Newsweek last week that he's the parent of a middle school student at Westport Public Schools. And he wrote an opinion piece that um, his son like had to experience all these anti-Semitic incidents at schools of students saying uh, anti-Semitic phrases, which I don't really want to repeat here. But I mean, just kind of a repeated, like a torrent of different things happening to his son at his school. And I mean, they were talking about it with the... Administrators of the school and the administrators of the school said, you know, we're handling it and, you know, created a plan. And essentially, um, Goldberg said, you know, the plan does not do enough to protect my, my son. So we are going to try to move him, we have to move him to a, a private school. And Westport Public Schools said that it would offer settlement. But part of the conditions of the settlement was that the family, uh, the Goldbergs, would not be able to talk about what happened leading up to the settlement. So any of the facts related to the anti-Semitism that his family experienced, that his son experienced while at school and how that was handled or anything like that. So instead of taking the money, the Goldberg said, you know, we're not going to do that and we're not going to be silent about this. So the I think more broadly, you know, we've seen a lot of different, a lot of tension uh, since the October 7th uh, attack on Israel by Hamas, a terrorist organization uh, designated by the United States. There's been a lot of, protests, there's been a lot of different uh, antisemitism and, and different kinds of, you know, hate-related incidents at schools and, you know, more broadly in, in America and, and throughout the world, frankly. But specifically in, in Westport, Connecticut, I mean, this, this caught the attention of the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, who, you know, posted on, on X, formerly Twitter, that, you know, this was anti semitic harassment. And that uh, children deserve transparency, accountability, and safety in the wake of these incidents. Greenblatt said nothing less. And he he described the anti-Semitic Semitic harassment as disgusting. And the, the family, too, the Goldbergs have said, you know, they, they couldn't be silent about this, right? That that part, that that, that was over and above what maybe a normal settlement agreement would have. And that's something that Goldberg pointed out in the piece in Newsweek, right, is that, you know, it is it is typical in settlement agreements to say when you don't disclose, you know, the terms of the settlement agreement. But this kind of went farther and, in fact, would have required that his 12-year-old son uh, to not talk about what happened to him and these events in his life.
8: Was that a major reason why the parents decided to not take the settlement?
9: yes and I, I spoke with Goldberg about this and these events and you know why they decided not to to go through at the settlement and and he said that he will not be silent on anti-semitism he's uh, he's Jewish and his they have relatives who who died in the Holocaust that this silence is not an option he's a journalist and he described interviewing uh, Eli Wiesel a Holocaust survivor who wrote the book night right he said that it was not an option to take this money. But yeah, that was that was, the biggest, that was the biggest issue. Andrew Goldberg's wife, Leslie Durkash, she also spoke before the school board and said that how the, the administrators tried to buy her family's silence was reprehensible and immoral. And she said students, she admitted, you know, students are going to say things and, you know, adults can't always control what's going to happen, but that school leaders should be accountable to handling these situations in, in a positive way.
8: So is the school doing anything to prevent anti-Semitism?
9: That's a great question. Thomas Garis, the uh, superintendent of the schools, he said in remarks that he prepared before the school board meeting last week that, you know, the school's doing a whole bunch of stuff. And he said that the school has a DEI, a diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives that they're that they're using to try to combat antisemitism and other forms of, of hate. He mentioned that they have resources that they use from the Anti-Defamation League, including a training that he recently participated in. That was criticized by by Andrew Goldberg. He said, you know, it's easy to rattle off like these lists of efforts of acronyms of phrases and initiatives, but it's really hard to, Translate that in, into something actionable. And he said, when I was talking with with Andrew Goldberg about this, he said, you know, if you ask a student or a, a teacher, what do you do about anti semitism, they probably look at you and say, I don't, I don't really know. And I think that that's sometimes a difficult part about this is how do you transfer some of these initiatives into you know more actionable things. And so specifically, I asked the school, you know, what are you doing for the um, for the Goldbergs? What are you doing to sort of rectify the situation with them, given that the settlement is not. Is not an option. And that was not clear. They did not respond to my, my request for comment there. Let me answer
8: this. More broadly, what are you seeing regarding anti-Semitism in schools around the country?
9: I think it is sort of, you know, there's been a lot of politicization around diversity, equity, inclusion efforts recently, given that there's still been, you know, a lot of anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic remarks and different kinds of statements. And so that's more broadly, that's that's what we're seeing is, I think, maybe a uh, and an inability for some of these initiatives to really help students feel supported and welcome, specifically from Jewish parents who have said, you know, my, my students will not feel welcome here.
8: Well, thank you, Brendan. But that's all the time we have. Uh, you can keep up with this story, like many of the nation's top education stories, at
0: chalkboardnews.com. Thank you to Tom and Brendan for that update. Education concerns often play a big part for voters heading into an election year. And it looks like the cost of housing will be a significant piece of the political puzzle, too. Joining me to dig into this is my friend and colleague, Ph.D. economist, Dr. Orfe Devungi. Dr. O, always great to be with you. And let's just jump right into it. You know, we're, you know, less than 11 months away from uh, Election Day here in the U.S. of A., and you posed this question to me in a, in a just a text exchange that we had, and and the question you proffered was: Is housing affordability going to hurt Biden at the polls? And I'll let you start. I think there are a number of things that are going to be affecting Joe Biden at the polls. His his current uh, approval rating is uh, is relatively low. But go ahead and you tell me what you think and how much housing is. Going yeah. To play look, into this. honestly, I I don't know
10: what I think. I I basically shared with you an article that was written by the chief economist at Redfin, who happens to be a fellow economist i respect and and like uh she's just awesome and she wrote this article where she basically says look the labor market is red hot the unemployment is low economic growth is strong inflation has moderated we got inflation down six percentage points in a year that's unbelievable without unemployment increasing income inequality has declined for the first time since 2007 so you got a, a good economy right now. People have jobs. The Fed got inflation down under control. We're even getting the hint of rate cuts in 2024. The soft lending that's never been done is happening. It's unbelievable. And yet, the incumbent president is struggling in the polls. And is this there's all the vibes, right?
0: Those negative vibes. Let's, let's put some frame to it. So, you know, the, the center square voters voice poll, the center square is the newswire service that the Franklin news foundation operates. And it did a poll of, of 2,500 Americans, thousand verified Republicans, a thousand verified Democrats and 500 verified independents. Mike Noble from Noble Predictive Insights in Phoenix is our partner on that. And here's what America said in the most recent poll that we did, which would be, you know, just about a month ago. The country somewhat approves of uh, Joe Biden to the tune of 24 percent, somewhat disapproves, 12 percent, strongly disapproves of Joe Biden in general, 44 percent. On the economic side, 45 percent strongly disapprove of what he's got going on and 23 percent somewhat approve. I mean, yeah, maybe housing I mean, we talk about housing and the importance that housing plays in just sort of the you know, the overall economic picture. I'll put it back to you. From a housing standpoint, do you think that the, the typical American voter is making that connection between the current president, his policies, and you know, what it costs to rent the average home or to buy the average home in America? Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I read
10: this and I thought, man, hey, man, I didn't think of that, but that's a good point. Home sales are a record low. They haven't been so low in so long. Affordability is a record at a record high. You know, if you don't own yet, you're a renter, you're struggling. You're trying to get on, you're trying to get on that ladder. It's hard. You know, thank God in November rates fell a little bit. And at the same time, house prices fell a little bit. So, you know, affordability improved a little bit. It might improve a little bit more in 2024. But as of right now, it's a struggle. And then you have these homeowners who have really, really low interest rates and have basically in the best possible financial position, kind of, I don't know, upset about their golden handcuffs. They're like, oh, well, I kind of wanted to move now, but I can't move because I'm gonna have to give up this massive discount I got, this really low payment. And I'm gonna have to move into a higher payment and I don't want to do that. And so everybody's complaining about housing these days. And so I mean, this is this is definitely going to improve in 2024 ahead of the election,
0: but it could be potentially part of the problem for the president. I think it will and could be, but there are probably some other issues that you know that are getting in the way. I mean, certainly what's going on with immigration and the number of people who have come in to the United States or the southern border, uh, you know, over the past three years is putting. Additional pressure, just to keep it sort of inside of this frame, this discussion that we're having about about housing. I mean, when you and I have spoken about the realities of housing in the United States, you know, I threw out the number that we're two million homes short. You said, "Sorry, partner, it's more like 4 million. And you know, if in fact you know we have allowed you know somewhere in the neighborhood of, of ten to fifteen million people to come into the United States illegally in the in the last three years. How much further does that exacerbate the number that you threw out? See, I would be sympathetic to that
10: argument, but you have to understand housing starts also increase a ton, right? So a lot of these immigrants that come in, they also go and work in the trades and construction and all that stuff. And so that helps us. A lot of them also go and work in the labor market and other jobs. And that's actually helped to increase labor supply, which has helped to cool down wage growth. Uh, so that we don't have the kind of pressure that would be inflationary, that would cause consumer prices to increase faster. It's actually helped us to bring inflation down. So I, I, so I'm not completely there with the immigration story yet, but, uh, but I'll tell you what though. Uh, someone else was really focused on the labor market, another economist that I respect and, and, and follow and like very much. The chief economist at the Burning Glass Institute. Well, he did a little bit of work and he's looking, he says the growth of the US economy in the last five years has been predominantly driven by two sectors, professional and technical services and information, in essentially tech and consulting. And so if tech and consulting are really driving growth, everybody else that doesn't work in tech and consulting is probably not all that uh, benefiting from the growth. They might not be feeling good, too good about the economy. Because they're not really seeing the gains, right? That everybody else on the coasts are seeing. I think that could be part of the problem for President Biden going
0: into the uh, this next uh, election. I don't disagree with that. Again, you know, just sort of staying within the sort of the housing segment. You know, I mean, I I have the benefit of traveling all over the country, and I'll tell you, from the East Coast to the West Coast, you see a lot of cranes and you see a lot of buildings being built, and presumably, you know, with what we know about the office. And sort of, you know, this this new world uh, relationship that we have with work at work—that these cranes are building buildings that people are going to be living in in cities. Right? Uh, you right. get outside of the cities, and you don't—it's not that you'd be looking for cranes, but you'd be looking for development that has yeah. slowed. And we've talked about that. Builder sentiment is yeah. is where is where it's at. You know, I mean, if, if foundations have been poured and plans have been laid, I mean, you have builders that are completing homes and. And they're selling them, but they're having to sell them with some level of concession, either a buy down rate or some other kind of perk to get the keys right. into somebody's but you, hands.
10: Yeah. But you would think that you would think that would help those renters, buyers, and they would they would be quite happy about that. But it's not. And I think the problem is mostly not so much the building in the cities; it's really so much the disparities, the geographic disparity. We're basically, you know, you have these coastal markets that are doing better, you know, and then you have this middle of, of America that hasn't really grown as much
0: or as fast. Hey, good discussion as always. Enjoyed it. Let's let's pull it uh, to a close here. That will do it for another week of the Center Square Radio Hour. The Center Square Radio Hour is a production of America's Talking Network, produced by Eliana Cronodal. If you missed some of today's show, you can find it at AmericasTalking.com. I'm Chris Krug and on behalf of everyone at Franklin News Foundation, Merry Christmas and thank you for listening to the Center Square Radio
7: Hour.